Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me this evening to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, the last book of Moses, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6 will be our text this evening. And as you're turning there, let me just make a couple uh, of disclaimers. Uh, If you did not wear your steel-toed boots tonight, uh, you've got about a 30-second prayer to run out and grab them and come back in to prepare yourself for the sermon. Uh, In all seriousness, this is a topic which, frankly, is very burdensome to many people. I know in this congregation there are men uh, that I've spoken with who have felt the weight of burden of family worship and what it means, and how they feel that they failed, and what does God say about it. And my intention tonight in looking at this text is not to uh, flick anybody in the eye, or punch anyone in the nose, or make anyone feel guilty about how things have gone in your family's life, or uh, according to your practice of family worship over the years. Rather, to instruct us from God's Word about what He expects, and what He says about the faithful instruction of covenant children in the law of the Lord and the love of God Almighty. And so as we look at this, please put aside perhaps for a moment, for a few minutes, what uh, has happened in your own life, and think afresh about what God says to you from His Word this evening concerning this great discipline of family worship, which is both necessary and beneficial for our covenant children and their love of the God that we love. So with the Word of God open, let's pray and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, as we come to You this evening to look at Your Word, we do ask that You would help us. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. There are some of us here who are unfaithful in family worship and need to be admonished by Your Word. There are others who are faint-hearted, having labored over it for years and years with seemingly no or little results, and perhaps, Lord, we need to be reminded of your promises and your faithfulness rather than simply our labor expecting it to bear fruit without the Spirit's work. And we pray, Lord, for those in the middle uh, who have neither practiced family worship faithfully nor felt burdened by it, Lord, would you instruct us all, train us in righteousness to the end that we might desire to train our children to fear you, to know you, to love you, and to be worshipers of you all the days of their lives, that we might be a generationally faithful church in Greensboro, that some hundreds of years from now there will be the great, great, great grandchildren of someone sitting here this evening who loves you and serves you with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested Him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in a time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers." And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before us, excuse me, before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. A friend of mine recently told me a golf story. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I do enjoy golf. It's one of those uh, things that I love to watch on TV. I love talking about it, and I especially love seeing the skill that it takes to do well. There's hardly anything more impressive than watching someone get lucky so often. (laughs) But the story I was told had to do with an old golf coach who wouldn't let his students on the links until they had sunk 10 five-foot putts in a row. Now, that might not seem like a lot to you, but if you've ever golfed, you know that that could take quite a while, 10 five-foot putts in a row. The person telling me this story said that some days there were guys who never even made it off the putting green. Imagine being on putt number 10. It goes around the back of the lip back to zero. That sort of approach to muscle memory, that sort of discipline in the basics has really become a lost art, hasn't it? 
There are very few people with such discipline. Only true artists and true athletes practice their craft like this. The rest are really just pretenders. So if a college golf coach would require his team to be so disciplined about putting, if he realized the long-term benefits of rehearsing the basics like that over and over and over, owning the short game, why is it then that so many of us struggle to find time for the discipline of family worship? Are not the rewards much greater? Are not the consequences of neglecting it far more serious? Is not the joy in family worship, in finding and knowing God, far greater than the joy of sinking a long putt? This evening, I want us to consider three things about family worship that we learned from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Three things that I hope will inform your family's practice beginning now in 2024 and beyond. And if you're single or perhaps you're older and have no children at home, please know that these practices, these principles are for you also. Do you not also desire to grow in personal holiness, to know the Lord your God more and better, to be faithful to Him in obedience to His Word? These things apply for private worship as much as they do for family worship. Therefore, husbands and wives as much as they are for parents and children. But these truths from Deuteronomy chapter 6 are really written to parents. They're not exclusively for parents, but directed to them. So that's sort of the approach that we'll take as we look at the text this evening. Three things then that I want us to consider about family worship. First of all, family worship is God's training ground for covenant children. Family worship is God's training ground for covenant children. Family worship, number two, is about generational faithfulness to God. It's also about God's faithfulness to generations, isn't it? And number three, and perhaps most practically, family worship is difficult. Family worship is difficult, and the Lord knows it, and He makes mention of it in this text through His servant Moses. So let's look at these three things together. The dinner table, as I'm sure you know, is all but extinct in the 21st century, isn't it? Families no longer meal together. They rarely converse with one another about anything meaningful. Electronic devices have replaced face-to-face conversations. Some parents, and if you're among them, this is not necessarily a, a value judgment. It's just an observation. Some parents text their children that dinner's ready. Come on down. TVs have gotten bigger and bigger. My wife and I were jokingly remembering uh 15, 16 years ago when we bought a TV that was like 30 inches and thought, boy, we're, I mean, we're like the hot house on the block, aren't we? We're having people over to watch the Super Bowl on this bad boy, uh, you know, and now that's like a kitchen TV. That's the size of the TV in the, in the back of a Tahoe, I think now. <laughs> TVs have gotten bigger and bigger, and their location in the center of the family room, if it's even called that anymore, makes very clear the centrality of entertainment in our homes and in our lives. Can you imagine the mockery one would receive if they were to suggest to their family that they wanted to begin a faithful discipline of family worship each evening? Children might grumble, spouses rolling their eyes, and even the one who suggests that this is an important practice would begin to feel the rise of anxiety in his or her heart as soon as the words left their mouth. We live in an age where family worship has all but disappeared in the Christian landscape. Even in Presbyterian and Reformed homes, 
And the question we have to ask is, why is this? What's happened, and how do we recover it? Well, I believe the why is simple. We've replaced it with other things. We've replaced family worship with other things. We've replaced family worship, that training ground for covenant children and covenant faithfulness in the lives of parents, with entertainment, with electronics, with sports, or 100 other things that you might list on your own. In addition, things like Sunday school, children's church, youth group, and church-sponsored events, all of which have their place, and at times, in fact, most times, are good and necessary, but these things which are not prescribed in Scripture by God for parents and homes to nurture their covenant children, uh, they have replaced mom and dad in the faithful practice of worshiping together as a family, haven't they? Mustn't we do something about this, Christ's covenant church? Shouldn't we be willing to stand alone in the world as a body of believers who love family worship? who think highly enough of the covenant promises made by God to us and to our children to instruct them in His Word, to teach them to fear the Lord and love Him, shouldn't we do something about this missing discipline? In other words, my challenge to us then, this my first sermon of 2024 to you, is that we become a church who loves family worship who says, God has made promises to me and my children, and if I don't teach them to know and love God, I simply cannot assume that someone else will. It's time to be faithful in my home. It's time to teach my young ones, myself, my spouse, when I am at home and walking in the way, when I lie down and when I rise. It's time to prioritize the fear and love of the Lord. Prioritize family worship because God certainly does. Well, it's God's training ground for covenant children. Deuteronomy 6, you know, comes in the midst of Moses re-giving the law to Israel. Deuteronomy, that second giving of the law. You remember all of the original recipients of the law are scattered across the wilderness landscape. They've all died along the way. And so this is the second generation of Israelites preparing to take hold of the land and the receiving, essentially for the first time, many of them, the law of God. What does He want us to do to expect to how should we think about Him? In chapter 5, Moses explicitly restates the Ten Commandments, and now he's working through an exposition of them, such as it were. He's giving us a little bit more detail about what it looks like to keep the first through tenth commandment. And here we find in chapter 6 what's essentially Moses' exposition of the first commandment, have no other gods before you. Of course, if you look back at chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, we'll see there's some parallels with the second commandment as well. He says, don't make a carved image, of course, which isn't necessarily relatable, but he says this is about the fathers and generational relationship and how God shows steadfast love to thousands who keep my commandments. That's what he wants the children of these parents to experience. We could even say that the fifth commandment is in view here, isn't it? As fathers instruct their children, as they honor their parents by coming around the table or the living room chair to faithfully worship God together. But in this text, we find Moses telling the people who God is and how we are to worship Him. This is one of the great texts of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In verse 5, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your might. What Jesus himself said was the greatest commandment. The summary of the whole law is wrapped up here. Love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. So this passage tells us very clearly and concisely who God is, and as a result of what we know about Him, how we're to relate to Him. How are we to interact with this God? How are we to worship Him? What does it look like in the life of a family in covenant with God? It looks like loving Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and the result of that sort of love is the faithful teaching to the children of who He is and what He's done. Our love for God, according to this text, is to be sincere, isn't it? It's a love that comes from the heart, a sincere love for God. It's a superlative love to love Him with your whole soul, all of your being, in other words. And it's a strong love. It's a love with all of your might, Moses says. Our love for Him, in other words, is to be an entire love, isn't it? The entirety of our person is to love God. Our whole person, our mind, our strength, our, how we use our bodies and our intellects, how we think about God and interact with others in light of who He is. And this love for God is based on who He is towards us, isn't it? He is sincere towards us. God is true and faithful in all His ways. His love towards us is superlative, isn't it? His mercy and kindness knows no end. His covenant faithfulness extends to a thousand generations. He has redeemed us from our enemy, and His love is strong. He's kept us, having delivered us, and He's fulfilled all His promises to us. So our love for God is reflective of His love for us. It's a whole-souled, whole-bodied, whole-minded love of God. And then Moses tells us how we're to take this love of God and etch it on our hearts, he says. Look at verse 6. These words that I commanded you, this whole law, which is reflective of my character, which informs the way that you think about me, is to be written on your heart. These words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. Moses wants us to, to consider our relationship with God as a permanent thing, isn't it? It's a covenant relationship. There's no breaking it. It's etched on our hearts even as our names are graven on the hands of our Savior. And by etching it on, on our hearts, we're to then teach diligently our children all of these things that we know about God, who He is, and what He's done for us. Home is the training ground. It's the school if you will, for covenant children to grow in their knowledge of and love to God. We're to write His law on our hearts. We're to love Him with all of our soul. And then we're to teach our children both in word and in deed to love the Lord our God and be faithful to Him. Now, this isn't just for parents. You kids who are here right now, you young children, I know there are teenagers and preteens and even younger kids here right now in this sanctuary as we gather for worship. And you may be thinking, great, that's my parents' responsibility. I guess that means we're going to try to read through the Bible again this year. But shouldn't you want this from your parents? Kids, if, if I told you that I had a method to provide for you by the time you reached adulthood a billion dollars in your bank account, wouldn't you be willing to sit down for 10 minutes every night after dinner in order to get that? 
If I told you that I had the trick to make you the greatest athlete on your team at school in whatever sport you play, or the, the most uh, uh, competent in whatever subject that you love, perhaps you're not an athlete and that doesn't really register, but you think, boy, I'd love to be a little bit better at math or a little bit better at, at uh, whatever it is that you're not very good at or you want to be better at, wouldn't you put the effort into finding that, that resource, that, that secret tool that, that we could provide for you? God says, listen, you want your children to know who I am, to experience the love of God and covenant faithfulness? It happens in the home. It happens as we teach our children who He is and what He's done. And our children ought to desire this, to know God's promises and His blessings and His benefits and His love for you. Now, it takes many shapes in the home, doesn't it? It says here in verse 7, you shall teach them, being your, uh, the law of God, diligently to your children. And listen to what he says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. In other words, there's nowhere you should go where you're not occupied with things of God. You shall teach them when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, there's no time where you shouldn't be concerned about things of God. That's what it means to have a whole-souled relationship with God, to have your whole mind and strength and body committed to loving God. Your whole life should be consumed with having what we might call religious conversations, talking with our children about the most important things, about God, about His redemption, about His faithfulness, about His love, and about His covenant. Look at the rest of the passage in verse 20. It implies that later on, as your children hear this over and over and over again, in time to come, they'll say, what's the meaning of all these things? You've been telling me about them all these years. You've been explaining to me who God is. Why are you telling me all this? What's the point? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. And he brought us from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. That's a covenant statement, isn't it? In other words, we were slaves, and God in his covenant faithfulness redeemed us. These are things that your children should be asking you about, your love for God. And when they do, you should tell them. You have religious conversations with about them day and night, here and there, about who God is and what He's done, about His faithfulness and the promises that He holds forth to them in the covenant as well. And this is the second point, isn't it, that family worship is about generational faithfulness. It's not just about me and my kids and me telling them or you telling your children about who God is. It's the expectation that this begins a snowball effect that rolls downhill and picks up every generation to come. Look back at verses 21 to 23 with me. We just read these a minute ago. You shall say to your son, we were slaves in Pharaoh's, uh, in, uh, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Listen to these pronouns with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, and he brought us out from there, that he may, might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Well, who's, who's receiving this, uh, this message from Moses right now? It's the second generation of Israelites, isn't it? Half of which weren't even in Egypt. They weren't slaves in Egypt. Their parents were. 
They weren't slaves in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness wanderings as the first generation. All those who were 20 years and older died along the way. Most of these people who are receiving this law were either little children when they left Egypt or not in Egypt at all. And yet, how do they describe to their children God's faithfulness? They say, we were slaves. Do you know what they're implying by that statement? They're implying the relationship, the generational relationship between children and their parents in God's covenant faithfulness. We were slaves, and God brought us out of Egypt by His mighty right hand. There's a generational aspect to God's promises. They are for you, according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, and for your children. Our children experience the blessings we do because of God's covenant faithfulness. Think of Noah, who alone was righteous in all the world, and yet who went into the ark with him? His family did. And they experienced the benefits of the covenant that God had made with him. All of these rules and statutes and practices and promises are generational. God made them to Abraham and to his offspring. We even apply the sign of the covenant to our children here at Christ Covenant Church. So too should we teach them about the God of the covenant, about his law, about his faithfulness and his goodness towards his people. That's how families end up seeing great-great-grandchildren worshiping alongside their great-great-grandparents, isn't it? I pastored a church in Montana for a number of years before coming here to North Carolina, and there was a Dutch Reformed church uh, in the town next to us that was in need of some pulpit fill, and I preached there a number of times. And there was in this, Reform, this Dutch Reformed church six generations of Christians all worshiping together. Six generations. Now, I don't know if I should tell you their ages. Well, this was a long time ago, so I don't imagine there's all six of them there anymore. But at one point, great-great-grandma was 103 at church every Sunday. Great-grandma was 84. Grandma was 60. Mom was 38. Her daughter was 19. And their baby was a baby. Six generations of one family. What was remarkable to me about this family is that all six generations of covenant children who were faithfully worshiping, worshiping each Lord's Day, they were all women. The men in those homes had abdicated their responsibility to teach the Word of God to their children, and the moms picked it up, and grandma picked it up, and then she taught her, her daughter, who taught her daughter, who taught her daughter, who taught her daughter. There's something to be said about the role of a godly woman in a Christian home. Don't forget what, the, what Solomon says in the Proverbs. He says, son, don't forget your father's teaching and your mother's instruction. This is something for both parents to care about and to practice in faithfulness to God. Family worship was a huge part of this family's life, wasn't it? But this isn't just anecdotal. It's not about being a family in a Dutch Reformed church with six generations of Christian women. It's given to us right here in the text, isn't it? This is what God expects of His people and, and promises to bless. Look at verse 2. This is the commandment in verse 1 that God has given you. I'm to teach it to you, Moses says, that you may go over to possess the land, that you may fear the Lord your God. Who? You and your son and your son's son. This is what we're led to expect. This is how God intends for His people to relate to Him in their homes 
As fathers and mothers teach their children about the covenant of God and the God of the covenant, these children are exposed to the reality of fearing the Lord, the weight of obeying the Lord, and the value of loving the Lord. And this is what each of us should want for our children and grandchildren, and indeed for the covenant children all around us in this room right now. As some of you don't have children or grandchildren yet. You look around, and if you recall the last time we baptized a covenant child right here at this font, the members of this church stood up and made a commitment to seeing that covenant child raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as if it were your own. Because we're a family of believers here. This was the intention of God from the beginning. Look at verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give, who did he swear to give it to? To Abraham and to Isaac. And to Jacob, generations before, 400 years ago, God had made promises to this family and to their children, which are now coming true for Israel. There were among those about to cross the Jordan River countless families that had taught their children to know and love the Lord as their ancestors had done. And here they were serving and fearing God, not because of family worship exclusively, but in concert with it. Now, let me offer a bit of a warning here. There's two extremes that sort of buffer the idea of family worship on either side that we need to be cautious of. Two positions that can be taken regarding this concept of family worship that we must be careful about. The first position is the one of the Baptist Association minister in England in the 1700s who stood up when young William Carey said he intended to go to Asia to preach the gospel, and he said, if you'll remember with me, when God intends to convert the heathen, he'll do it without you or me. In other words, there's an extreme position that says God has determined already those who he'll save, best just to stay out of his way and let him do his business. The problem with this, of course, is that God not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. And according to Deuteronomy 6, one of those means that God has ordained, a very important and necessary and even blessed means, is family worship. It's one of the ways that God intends for His covenant children to know who He is and come to fear and love Him. Faithful fathers and mothers who instruct their children daily and often daily in the love and nurture of the Lord are a way that God raises up a faithful generation. But there's another extreme on the other side which is what we might call presumptive regeneration. We don't believe that all of our covenant children will be saved. I hope you know that. Uh, We don't put a burden on fathers that says, if you fail, that's why your children are unregenerate. What a terrible burden to put on someone's shoulder. Remember, this is about loving the Lord your God and teaching your children to love Him. But there's a, a, an idea called presumptive regeneration which says that all covenant children will be saved, and we don't believe that. God alone knows who are His. Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael, didn't he? And Isaac had Jacob and Esau, didn't he? And the list goes on and on. But we've practiced family worship and the nurture of our covenant children with what we might call a hopeful expectation that God will bring them to Himself Rather than assuming, in other words, that none of my children will come to know Christ or that God will save them in some way disconnected from any involvement by me, 
I rather think that if I get to heaven and discover that one of my children isn't there, I should be shocked because I have a hopeful expectation of the promises that God has made and the faithful instruction in the covenant that they receive will result in faith in Christ. God has made promises, and I believe them. And I'm teaching them to my children, and His Word does not return void. I don't presume, but I expect, and I pray, and teach, and hope, and I worship joyfully so they might know what it looks like to love the Lord our God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And perhaps you've done that, and you have children who have wandered far from the faith. Don't forget there's two thieves on the cross. One who in the last moments turns to Christ in repentance and faith to remind us that none are without hope, and the other who doesn't to remind us that none should presume. And so if you're continuing to pray for a wayward child, if you're continuing to hope beyond hope that they might return to the God of the covenant and love the Lord Jesus Christ alone with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, keep praying and keep teaching and keep reminding and keep believing that God knows all who are His, and He who began a good work, even in your presently wayward child, will bring it to completion. Do you practice family worship as though you believe God's promises are generational? as though His covenant is for you and for your children and for your children's children? Well, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't hard work, right? You know it. So do I. And so did the Lord. That's why He tells His people to root their desire to do family worship in His greatness, in His covenant faithfulness, in His promises, and He warns them of the dangers around it. Just like putting ten times from five feet, the discipline of practice pays off in the long run. Look at verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, a land with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. I love how God is always telling Israel to take care lest they forget, or He reminds them to remember over and over again. He knows how little we remember and how prone we are to forget, doesn't He? But here's the danger. This is the difficulty in family worship. When life is good and things are going well, when we're all healthy and strong and our bank accounts are full, we find very little reason to draw our family together around the table for worship. We find very little reason to talk with our children about sin or about providence or about redemption, which are all things taught in this text, aren't they? God gives us all these things. He brought us out of the land. Be careful that you don't put the Lord to your test and sin. Look at how providential God is in bringing you here and giving you life. These are all things taught, and we are distracted from teaching them because of the ease of life. The world distracts us from family worship. Sports are going well, so we're hoping for that scholarship. Can't do worship. Practice has got to happen. Bills are piling up because the house is big and electricity is expensive and meat costs a lot of money and chickens won't lay eggs like they used to and vacations just don't pay for themselves. Can't do worship tonight. Got to work a few more hours to make that money. You know, Christmas just ripped through our house like an F5 tornado. I don't know about yours. The house is piled high with new toys and new clothes and new gadgets and new games, and 
boy, I don't know if I really want to fight that fight. Let's not do family worship tonight. Let's just let the kids play. Besides, it's hard to get them all to sit down for 10 minutes and be quiet anyway, isn't it? Besides, they'll learn these things at church. The pastor's paid to preach, and he'll make it understandable. Paul Rogers is going to cover all these things in youth group form. Let's give them to him. They go to a Christian school, maybe, that surely they're learning the Bible there. Take care, the Lord says, lest you forget. Forget your responsibility, his commandments, and his goodness. He commands us to do family worship that our children might grow up to experience all the blessings of his redemptive work and love, that they might teach their children, that generation to generation we might have faithful lovers of God teaching covenant children who God is and what he's done. It's a joy to talk about the God that you love. I've never met a man who's deeply in love with his wife who grumbles about talking about her. And yet I strangely meet a lot of Christians who love the Lord and complain about talking about Him around the dinner table. It's the beginning of a new year. Let's take this as an opportunity to renew our commitment to personal and family worship, to teach ourselves and our families the covenant of God and the God of the covenant. Let this text remind us that the fear of the Lord and the love of God have far more to do with our children's eternal salvation and earthly sanctification than do any other things, sports or jobs or recreational activities or whatever it might be. As important as those things are and as valuable as they are in their context. The title of the sermon isn't family worship alone. It's the priority of family worship. If God prioritizes, prioritizes family worship, shouldn't we also? Shouldn't we also? He says here in this text, fear the Lord, you and your son and your son's son. Keep his statutes and commandments which I gave you all the days of your life, that your days might be long. Be careful to do these things, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. He certainly doesn't instruct us to do family worship absent any benefit to us, does he? Sitting around the table with our children, with our spouses, sitting alone at your table with the Word of God open and a pen and a journal next to you, the blessing of spending time fearing the Lord and knowing Him more, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Anyone who comes to the Lord thirsty and hungry will leave satisfied. Anyone who comes to the Lord fearing Him will leave loving Him. That's the promise that God attaches to this. And that's why we should pursue it and prioritize it in our homes as a church and as individual families. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. Your word, we ask that you would etch it on our hearts even as we seek to etch it onto the hearts of our children through your word and by your spirit. We ask that you would strengthen us for the task. Help it 
as John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, not to be burdensome to us, but a joy to come together as a family, to recognize that when we do, when we come together as families, we're experiencing the reality of your covenant promises. Help us to teach them to our children. Lord, would you bless Christ Covenant Church that generations from now, there will be in this sanctuary families with the same names as families who are here right now, who will be able to trace their roots back all the way to the earliest days of this church's existence and on into eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.